Good afternoon, friends. Happy Monday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you, kicking off another week here in uh, August. Looks to be a pretty hot week, uh, at least up until Friday. Anyway, we got a lot to get to on the program today. Our number, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. Alberta's Premier is back. She was away last week, I assume maybe uh, on vacation. So we didn't have an opportunity to hear directly from the Premier about the federal clean energy regulations. Well, the Premier addressing that and other issues at a press conference today. We'll get to some of what she had to say about whether this is a fight with Ottawa. And if so, where things go from here. So we'll get to some of the Premier's comments coming up in a bit here. Got a few other things I want to get to here this afternoon. As mentioned, plenty of time for your phone calls and your texts. Let's talk about what remains a major issue right across the country, and that is housing. There were some comments recently from the prime minister that raised a lot of eyebrows. uh, The idea that the federal government is not solely responsible for housing, which in a way is true. I mean, there is plenty of shared jurisdiction here between uh, all levels of government. But it did come across maybe as uh, the prime minister passing the buck a little bit here or trying to avoid any kind of responsibility or accountability for Canada's status quo. And it's a problematic one. Go back to 2015 uh, when the federal government made some pretty sweeping promises about what they hope to achieve with regards to housing and affordable housing more specifically. Uh, So I think it is fair to to hold them to that. This this is their record, as much as some of it is, in fairness, uh, out of their control. Uh, But of course, there is the issue of immigration. And look, I mean, I think it would be unfortunate to see immigration become more of a wedge issue than maybe it's already been. Uh, because Canada is going to need immigration, a lot of immigration in the long run. In the short term, though, it's it's fair to say that it's it's adding to demand. The Bank of Canada has noted that, uh, as a recent report from uh, TD Economics also noted. So that's something that's directly uh, under federal, exclusively really under federal uh, control, and that that's a big factor when it comes to demand for housing. By extension, housing prices. Look, we got a real crisis in this country. And it varies across the province, or pro- across the provinces, rather, when you look across the country at housing prices or, or rents. But things have been going up pretty much right across the board. So what do we need to see uh, from our political leaders? What do we need to see from the federal government? How much responsibility does the prime minister, does this government bear for the situation as it stands right now in this country. Well, joining us uh, for more, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, here this afternoon, someone who uh, focuses a lot of his time and research uh, on these issues, Dr. Mike Moffitt, director of the Place Center and a researcher focused on economic development and housing issues. Mike, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that comment from the Prime Minister. And maybe he was just trying to say, hey, it's it's not only our responsibility, but I think to some people, like I say, it came across maybe as, as passing the buck a little bit here. How did it come across to you? Yeah, I, I think so as well. And I, I think he was trying to uh, be sort of collaborative, but it does come across as passing the buck, particularly when the federal government hasn't really articulated any reason why they believe we're in a crisis because the cause of the crisis would identify who should solve it like if we believe uh that this crisis is caused by municipal zoning issues and, and nimbyism then i think the federal government would be right and say you know that's it's not us it's it's the municipalities though so the previous housing minister outright said it wasn't the municipalities so you know but it could be immigration it could be international students it could be all number of issues but you know, when the federal government doesn't articulate what's causing the problem and then says, well, it's not really our responsibility, it does feel like passing the buck a little. 
It does. So, I mean, how do you define or explain the crisis? What, what is the situation we're dealing with right now? Well, I, I think the core of it is a, is a lack of coordination, that, that we have significant policy, uh, or population growth in this country, which actually mostly isn't, isn't uh, driven by immigration, but it's driven by a lot of uh, uh, non-permanent resident programs, like international students and, and temporary foreign workers, coupled with any kind of plan on housing. So it's a classic Canadian coordination problem where you've got three orders of government who are all, you know, have some responsibility and nobody's really planning things. So if you are, uh, you know, let's say in Guelph, Ontario, you know, basically you've got the federal government saying, oh, by the way, next year immigration targets are going up and you've got your local colleges and universities increasing international enrollments with no coordination whatsoever with any kind of municipal housing plan, let alone transit plans or anything else. So I think the big thing you need to do is just get everybody in a room together and say, okay, you know, what do the next five to ten years look like and how can we coordinate our immigration plans with our housing plans? Uh, we've also seen over the last week, we had the finance minister uh, out on tour talking up the first home savings account. The immigration minister was was doing that as well. And I, I guess for people who are buying a, a first home, something like this can be useful. But are, are we just adding to demand? How do these kinds of policies fit in? Yeah, exactly. Because we don't have a shortage of money. We have a, a shortage of homes. So trying to figure out how we... Uh, uh, get more money uh, to, to, to buy homes is, is just inflationary. And I, and I think it's a big challenge here as well. Like if you look at these savings uh, programs that, you know, you might be able to save up to $40,000, well, there's a couple challenges there. The first law, the young people don't have $40,000. And here in Ontario, where a starter home may cost seven or $800,000, $40,000 doesn't even get you a down payment. And, and with the interest uh, rates being as high as they are, with the stress test uh, making it you know, really difficult for anyone who, who earns under $150,000 to own a home, these programs actually don't accomplish very much. What could the federal government do? I mean, zoning is, is a municipal responsibility. Can the federal government use carrots or sticks to to, to to push things in a certain direction? I mean, what, what is that uh, overlap or that, if it is cooperation, what does that look like? Yeah, so, so some of it is uh, an approvals process issue that, that is municipal in nature. And the federal government can use their spending power, whether it be carrots or sticks, to buy municipal reforms that uh, uh, they can, uh, you know, use that. And that's essentially what they're doing with the uh, housing accelerator fund that they set up, this multi-billion dollar fund uh, for municipalities. But some of these approval processes are uh, within the CMHC, that there's over a couple thousand applications for CMHC insurance uh, for their uh, big apartment building program that are sitting on the desk there. It's a lot like the... uh, uh, passport issue from a couple of years ago. So, you know, part of these approvals delays are federal, but a lot of the issues we're seeing right now is just um, new apartment buildings don't really make economic sense to build with interest rates being that high. Uh, we need to figure out how we can drive down those costs. And one of the things that the federal government can do is remove the GST or HST on purpose-built uh, rental apartments. This is something that industry has been calling for for a while. They say it would uh, move the needle on some of these projects. So, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, it's not just carrots and sticks to the municipality, but there's a lot of 
reforms of federal processes, uh, tax implements, and things like that that the federal government could use to get more shovels in the ground. It's interesting. You mentioned what we refer to as nimbyism, and that can sort of mean or refer to a lot of things, but maybe at its core, it's, you know, the ownership side of of the housing equation, because those who own homes have a vested interest in those values continuing to increase. And there are a lot of homeowners in Canada. So to what extent is is that a factor that governments want to address the housing issue or say they want to, but they also don't want to to anger that the other side? Yeah, I think there's a lot of it. And I think it's why we haven't seen uh, much movement at the federal level until now, because there was concern that, okay, if we make housing more affordable, that that may uh, anger older voters who are also more likely to vote. But I think there are creative ways around that, that I find uh, a lot of seniors, for instance, would love to be able to downsize their home, but they can't because we don't just we don't have enough. Uh, seniors-type condos, particularly in the neighborhoods that seniors want to live in. So if we could figure out some interesting policy tools to address that, that would solve a couple problems at once. That First of all, it would help existing homeowners downsize, but when they do downsize, that would allow the next generation to to buy those homes. So I think we need to find these win-win solutions, because you're absolutely right. If this becomes kind of zero-sum, the existing homeowners are always going to win, because there's more of them, and they're more likely to vote. And then there's immigration that, that we touched on, and whether it be, you know, immigrants, permanent residents, international students, you know, that, that is contributing to demand. Um, maybe there's some unfortunate politics around all of this. And I, like I said earlier, I don't think we want to see immigration become a wedge issue, but I, I don't know. I mean, is, is it something, though, that we need to look at? Do we need to maybe have, at least in the short term, some less ambitious targets? Yeah, I, I certainly think we need to look at it, and, and I share your concern that, you know, I think our immigration system has worked well, has had broad support across the country, and I'd hate to see that uh, get at risk. So I think we should look at these. I think, you know, one of the things that the government does is tend to Im- announce new immigration targets for the upcoming year. But that doesn't give municipalities or even home builders time to react to those targets. So what if instead of giving a few months' notice, you gave a few years' notice and go, okay, here is our, uh, here's our 10-year plan about immigration targets. That way, industry and other orders of government could react to that. And, you know, there's always risk. New governments can get elected and, and change things, but it would create some certainty. And I think that's more important than anything else. It's not just the sheer number. It's just how the, the numbers are announced with very little notice that doesn't give other uh, other stakeholders time to react. We'll see where it all goes from here. Much more to smartprosperity.ca. Mike Moffat, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Mike Moffat, founding director of the Place Center, part of these uh, Smart Prosperity Institutes, uh, smartprosperity.ca. That we need governments to act like this is a crisis, and that includes the federal government. And when you start suggesting that, well, hey, maybe talk to your local government or provincial government, you know, that, that's that's not a meaningful response. You know, look, all three levels of government need to act together. Uh, but each needs to step up and recognize that they got some responsibility for this. And that certainly includes the federal government, especially when you look at the, you know, the immigration side, which is clearly federal jurisdiction. That's playing a role here, too.
Good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Monday afternoon. Thanks for spending some time with us. A lot to get to in this hour. We'll recap some of what the Premier had to say, uh, holding a press conference to officially say publicly what she'd said in a statement last week, that the federal clean electricity regulations are not workable for Alberta and, as written, will not be put into effect in Alberta as far as she's concerned. So we'll get to some of that, a few other things I want to get to as well. You know, we've seen some concerning uh, levels of gun violence in Canadian cities as of late, and including in both Edmonton and Calgary uh, in recent weeks. And certainly stats can numbers with regard to crime rates, violent crime rates suggest that things are, are going in the wrong direction. So where does gun policy need to fit in? in terms of addressing all of that. And is the federal government on the right track with their approach to gun policy? C-21 uh, that the federal government brought in uh, addresses handguns through a handgun freeze and also addresses so-called assault-style weapons with a proposed ban on so-called assault-style weapons. But uh, the government seems unable to really pin down exactly what constitutes uh, an assault-style weapon, what it is they want to ban, or how an assault-style weapon would be distinguishable from, you know, say, a semi-automatic hunting rifle. So the, the approach has been problematic. I think arguably it's been a political approach as well, that maybe this is about wedge issues more so than it is about public safety. So an interesting new report out from the McDonald laurier Institute looking at some of the problems, some of the shortfalls when it comes to the current approach and what some meaningful policy uh, on this front might look like. So joining us to talk more about it, and by the way, you can read more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. One of the authors of the report joining us here this afternoon, Noah Schwartz, an assistant professor of political science at the University of the Fraser Valley, focusing his research on firearms policy and politics, and also he's author of the book On Target, Gun Culture Storytelling in the NRA. Professor Schwartz, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. We look at the context of Canada's gun control system or previously announced measures. How unprecedented or unusual was the government's recent Bill C-21? Yeah, it's certainly a step uh, out of line with what we've seen uh, previously, um, which was since, you know, the 1990s, uh, a desire to have strict regulations uh, on firearms, which is, of course, proper. Uh, They are dangerous objects and they must be regulated. But at the same time, uh, respect the needs of existing communities uh, that, you know, rely on those tools for for food, uh, for sport, um, and for recreation. Um, I think uh, with the recent policy, Bill C-21, we've seen the government really step over a line um, and and make changes that are going to be really detrimental uh, to those communities without uh, necessarily a proportionate improvement in public safety as a result. You know, the, the extent as well to, to how much politics has infiltrated this conversation. And maybe there have been, you know, politics. I, I remember the debate around the, the long gun registry was was quite political. But how different is, is the political context here? That's certainly, uh, certainly the case. I mean, if we look at these policies from a policy perspective, as in, you know, what's going to work to reduce crime, uh, we see a lot of inconsistencies. So, for example... Um, the Toronto Police Service recently released statistics, you know, in Ontario, only 3% of crime guns were legally owned before showing up on crime scenes. The major source for crime guns in, in Canada is really the United States. Um, but yet the measures in Bill C-21 are, are really going to target, for the most part, um, a very, very small source of illegal firearms in this country, which is, uh, you know, Canada's sort of licensed and, and fairly heavily vetted uh, gun owners. Um when we look at this from a politics perspective, though, the policy sort of makes more sense uh, in that gun control in Canada has really been a wedge issue, um, especially since 
since the Harper era um, that in the long gun registry that that's that really kicked it off. Um, and it's been used as a way uh, for the Liberal government to sort of divide off and, and get support in key urban ridings, um, since they really don't need very many rural ridings uh, to win uh, with their with their vote getting strategy. Yeah, the provisions around handguns. I mean, it, it does seem unusual in a policy sense too. I mean, to to freeze handgun sales is unusual. It has an impact on on legal gun owners, but it's hard to see how that has any impact beyond that. And the idea that that cities would be allowed to to try to regulate them themselves that that's you know for something that's federal jurisdiction that that seems odd too yeah so the, they've really been sort of struggling to find uh, a way to frame this policy they had originally said that this was going to be something that you know maybe cities or provinces could get involved in regulating i think when they actually heard from the cities and provinces saying that we really don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole uh, maybe with the exception of, of uh, alberta and saskatchewan who are are sort of pushing to take more control over firearms policy um, I think they said, you know, this is something that, you know, maybe we, the federal government should continue to handle. And that's when they went ahead with the, the handgun freeze that, of course, is going to prohibit anyone from purchasing a handgun in the future. It's essentially um, a ban, um, but with a long timeline. Uh, so anyone who has a firearm now, uh, if a handgun now can keep it, but if it breaks, um, they can't replace it. They can't, you know, necessarily uh, bring new people into the sport. So it's almost right. like a stay of execution. Yeah, and of course, you get the part of C twenty one is is an actual ban, but uh, a kind of nebulous one. Um, you know, the the idea of banning so called assault style weapons, and we've always had a, a classification system for firearms in Canada. But how different is this? Yeah, so um, the government once again has also struggled to define what they mean by assault style weapons. They finally come out with what they see as an evergreen definition. Um, as we saw, however, uh, this past winter. Um, that definition does touch on many firearms that are commonly used by hunters and especially uh, indigenous hunters. Um, so uh, they, this ban, unfortunately, is either the assault-style weapon ban. Originally, it was sort of too narrow and maybe didn't cover uh, cover all of the guns that the government wanted to ban. And so they've changed it to be a bit too broad. And now mm-hmm. it's sort of touching on firearms that are used for hunting. So once again, uh, with the still changes to C21, they've gone with a deferred strategy where they're sort of going to add firearms over time to the ban rather than have one single uh, upfront ban uh, where, where Canadians can sort of honestly see what's happening with this policy. Right. So, I mean, maybe this is good, good politics at some level, but that's that's a different consideration. In terms of whether this is good policy, do, does it fail that test? Yes, unfortunately, uh, once again, these aren't the firearms that we're seeing show up on, on crime scenes. Uh, for the most part, um, what, what we're seeing, what's driving uh, the wave in crime is uh, smuggled handguns and increasingly 3D printed firearms. We've seen, uh, for example, in the spring, a number of big busts um, of organizations creating 3D printed handguns. And we know, you know, when there's big busts happening, there's probably a lot more happening sort of beneath the surface that we're not seeing. And then once again, police uh, departments are reporting seeing more and more of these across crime scenes. Uh, So the government really, the the amount of money and time and effort that's being spent on C21 um, really could be put into better strategies uh, for fighting crime that are going to give Canadians more bang for their buck. And that's what we really wanted to highlight in this policy paper. Right. And I, I suppose uh, supporters of C21 or the government's position could argue that we can do both. But if, if one is getting in the way of the other, then then perhaps we do need to take a step back. So in order to focus on areas that, that do deserve attention, it's your, your opinion then or your contention that we need to take a step back from C21. 
Certainly, yes. I think C21 is allowing the government to say that they're doing something on crime. Um, it's allowing them to sort of put this forward as a measure that they're doing without actually addressing the root causes of any of the problems. Um, and it's also taking sort of money and resources that could be put into, I mean, first of all, um, increasing funding for the Canadian firearms program so that they can do better screening uh, on potential on firearms applicants, um, putting money into evidence-based violence prevention strategies uh, that really have the best track record in the academic literature uh, of um, actually reducing crime and, and helping to tackle some of the root causes of gun violence. Right. And, and these are tall orders. And I, I don't you know, I don't think anyone's pretending that this is an easy challenge, especially when, you know, we have this long border with the United States and, and so many guns are smuggled across the border. But I mean, any any policy uh, really does need to start with what is the problem? How do we address the problem? And so what we have now, as you argue, really isn't. Um, but what can we do to begin to address some of this? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, C21 is allowing the government to stop that conversation early and not go to talk about those more difficult questions and those uh, more difficult root causes. Um, I think things that we can do, uh, first of all, violence interruption programs. Um, So the government has announced funding for Mm -hmm. community-based programs, but a lot of that funding is episodic. It's sort of one-off funding. Here's a grant. Here's a grant. And that doesn't allow cities. It doesn't allow, uh, you know, um, organizations to create long-term uh, projects, which are we are what we really need to be able to stop those uh, the violence from happening. So having actually um, regular funding rather than episodic funding for these violence interruption programs that that get involved uh, on the street level um, and actually uh, stop gang violence from happening where it is. Um, things like uh, focusing on youth, um, so programs uh, to divert young offenders from gangs to create community-based uh, after-school activities for young people so that they don't have to sort of find their own entertainment, um, which can often, you know, turn into them falling uh, into gangs or other things like that. And these are really basic things, um, but they're expensive and they need to be funded in the long term to work, uh, which is, I think, why governments have sort of shied away from providing them with the funding they need. Well, I think, A, there's, there's something to be said, a lot to be said for, for policy that, that actually targets the problem. But I wonder, too, if, if this has some political upside. It seems like the kinds of recommendations in this report are much more likely to have a broader consensus, much less of that polarization. I mean, we see the debate in the United States. Is it advisable, do you think, for, for Canada to, to want to avoid that? Certainly, yeah. I think from a, uh, unfortunately, from a wedge politics perspective, if you're trying to get votes, if you're trying to create these big issues that are going to divide people neatly along like a 50-50 line so that you can break off voters and, and get them into your camp, um, then focusing on big ticket items, like obviously a, a gun ban sounds, it sounds exciting. It sounds like you're doing something very, very firm and, and hard to stop crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, when it comes to getting results, uh, we've seen that uh, gun control in Canada has really hit a point of diminishing returns. Since the 1990s, we've had really strong policies in place, and, and simply adding more gun control is going to give us less and less results at this point. Um, whereas these uh, things like violence interruption programs, like youth programming, like after-school programs, it, it sounds sort of soft. It, it doesn't necessarily sound as exciting. It doesn't capture headlines. And right. so there's less political incentives to do it, even though it works a lot better. Well, as mentioned, uh, this paper, it's uh, out today. It's up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Noah, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me.
Okay, there you go. That's uh, Noah Schwartz, Assistant Professor of Political Science, University of Fraser Valley, co-author of this report for the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. You can reach us here this afternoon, 780-496-0063-403-974-8255. We're back with more right after this. Important journalistic work by the National Post in conjunction with the Investigative Journalism Foundation has caught the attention of the Canadian Judicial Council, uh, and they've launched a probe, and this concerns political donations by those sitting on the bench. Now, a lot of this work is focused on the political donations made prior to somebody receiving an appointment uh, to, to be a judge or to sit on a tribunal. And the question of whether political donations of the governing party are improving one's chances of getting those kinds of appointments. So some interesting findings as part of this investigation. There's also another side to that and political donations that occur after the fact. Individuals who've been appointed to be a judge or to sit in a tribunal who are making subsequent political donations to the governing party. Now, that seems far more problematic, which, as mentioned, uh, is why it's all caught the attention of Canada's judicial watchdog. Uh, this all stems from the Donating Judges series of articles, as mentioned, uh, work by the National Post and the Investigative Journalism Foundation. Uh, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Kate Schneider, uh, who's a UK-based reporter with the Investigative Journalism Foundation, also editor-in-chief of the Oxford Political Review. Uh, Kate, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. So let's take a step back and, and look at, uh, you know, the Donating Judges series and, and what it was uh, you and, and Christopher Nardi of the National Post were, were looking into in the first place. Give us a bit, a bit of an overview first. Sure, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, you know, several of the experts that uh, we've talked to um, have, you know, brought up the fact that uh, the politicization or, um, you know, governing party influence over the judiciary is has been a problem um, in Canada for, you know, many decades, many prime ministers. Um, so, you know, we would we thought we'd take a look at uh, what, it, what what the state of that is uh, today um, under the Trudeau government. So exactly as you said, um, our story uh, that was released last week uh, looked at uh, donations that judges and tribunal members um, may have made before their appointment. Um, and then this morning's story uh, looked at uh, donations that were made um, by a smaller handful of judges and tribunals um, or potentially made by these these members while they were um, or while while currently they are um, still uh, sitting on courts and tribunals. All right. There was a lot of data to go through. I mean, you know, since 2016, there's been over 1,300 uh, of these kinds of appointments. So I guess this is a process of going through all of that and then you know, cross-referencing databases to see which of those had made political donations to whom they'd made those political donations. So talk about the, the investigative side of what went into this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yes, I mean, it was a uh, several several months that it took us to, to parse through all this data. Um, we drew it from uh, two main sources. So first was the um, Elections Canada uh, political contributions database um, that is online, fully fully public. Everyone can go up and um, uh, go and search up uh, donations made by um, really anyone to federal political parties. Uh, and the second source of data that we pulled from um, was the order in council government database. Um, so whenever any sort of um, appointment is made by the federal government, uh, there's a little proclamation that goes up. Um, so we had to, you know, scrape all of that data from that online database um, and then extract all of the judges' names, um, 
their their you know city of residence, uh, and then similar for the donations database as well. And then um, you know we used uh, this this uh, algorithm to to try and match them up, and then uh, had several different reporters independently going through uh, and vetting that each of these matches um, to you know the human eye uh, were were plausible ones uh, or confident matches even. Uh, so, yes, as, as you can tell, uh, the, the vast uh, majority of the time that we spent um, doing this investigation was wrangling um, this, you know, huge amounts of data. Well, and some interesting findings there. I mean, not, not everybody who's been appointed to, to either the bench or tribunal had made a political donation. But among those who had made past political donations, uh, and these are appointments by a liberal government, the vast majority of those had made donations to the liberal party. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we found, uh, I guess, two main findings from looking at people who had donated um, beforehand. So, first of all, um, exactly as you said, um, only about um, one out of five judges uh, appears to have, or tr- judges and tribunal members, appears to have donated um, in the decade prior to their appointment. Um, so, you know, that part, uh, good news for people who are concerned about uh, the politicization of the judiciary. Right. Uh, on the other hand, um, looking at those who have donated, like you said, uh, the vast majority has donated to the Liberal government. Um, and there's some important context here that I think also uh, will, uh, you know, I guess, raise raise more concerns about this. Um, back in, uh, I believe it was early 2019, the Globe and Mail uh, actually did a very, very similar analysis. Um, and um, they, at the same time, um, had found, uh, they, they were able to reveal that the Prime Minister's office was using a private party database called Liberalist. Um, and uh, that database was letting them see whether um, prospective appointees uh, were Liberal Party supporters, um, including um, mainly whether they donated or had been had been members. Um, so our analysis, um, really several years later, uh, we've, you know, looking at the, the current state of it, uh, we also have a year-by-year breakdown in, in, in the story. Uh, and we found that um, since the Globe and Mail had revealed that the Liberals were actually taking into consideration um, donations, the uh, percentage of um, judges who were donors, who were donating Liberal, has stayed about the same, um, which suggests that, uh, you know, they, you know, the Liberal government uh, or the, the Prime Minister's office did deny to us that they are, uh, they did say they are not using Liberalist or any other uh, political donations databases, um, but it raises questions about whether they are potentially using other methods um, to vet whether uh, these prospective appointees are uh, Liberal supporters or not. Right, which raises the question then, as you say, to you know, to what extent would the government be aware of these donations or these political connections when they're making these decisions to appoint these individuals? This could all be happenstance or coincidence, I suppose. But as you say, it's been it's been previously documented. There was at least that that level of awareness. What what can we say with certainty at this point? Um, at this point, um, again, there wasn't. Uh, you know, we we weren't able to um, you know confirm whether they're using. Uh, still any any sort of um, other methods other than a database. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, exactly, as they as was previously, previously reported um, in back in 2019, they were using um, donations as one, one metric. Um, we can say at least uh, that um, the lower levels of the um, appointment process, so uh, it goes through first these judicial advisory committees um, comprised of, you know, regular um, uh, citizens or, you know, experts, uh, but, you know, very much not government uh, members. Um, it goes to them first. And we do know that those people sitting on the judicial um, advisory committees 
who make recommendations to the government, those people are not uh, privy to the donation history or political leanings of people applying to be judges. Um, however, uh, then it goes into uh, the first um, for judges goes to the minister um, of justice's office and then up to the PMO for um, different tribunal uh, appointments. It might yeah. it might slightly differ, uh, but ultimately they all end up at the PMO. Uh, and there we really don't have um, much insight. It it really they, the PMO has ultimately full discretion over who gets appointed. Right. So they, I mean, there is a process in place that, that ensures some level of competence then when it comes to these appointees. And I guess the, the issue here isn't necessarily the quality of these appointees, but maybe, you know, the independence or the perceived independence. So what, what are the concerns that you've been hearing from some of the experts you've spoken to? Exactly. Um, yeah, so all of the, the experts um, that we spoke to did, did you know, emphasize the point that uh, these people are getting vetted by these um, independent committees um, who do check things like qualifications um, and do check that the, the people are competent. So, you know, Canadians, uh, as far as our investigation has been able to find out, should not be concerned about whether um, the vast majority of judges are competent or capable of doing their jobs. We, we know that um, they, they are capable of doing that. Uh, however, you know, once the the advisory committees they send up recommendations, um, I should actually specify they don't uh, send up. You know, here's our one candidate we'd like to, uh, you know, recommend becomes a becomes a judge. They they grade each candidate. So there's, you know, potentially uh, dozens of candidates who are going to the um, prime minister's office uh, that uh, are you know get the grade highly recommended, um, and yeah, like you said, it's either. Um, you know, it's really the, the perception of the uh, political influence there or potential uh, actual political influence um, over, you know, the, the PMO uh, possibly choosing liberals um, more often than conservatives or NDP or green, et cetera, donors. Let's talk about the other side of this um, story that, that seems to have caught the attention of the Canadian Judicial Council. Uh, individuals who have been appointed these positions but then made political donations after the fact, and that creates almost a, another level of perceived conflict here. Um, so first of all, to what extent is this going on? How many of these kinds of donations are we talking about? Yes, yeah, so um, uh, we found um, that uh, matching uh, order and council, um, you know, names from the order and council database mm -hmm. against uh, the elections candidate database, we found that uh, possibly two Ontario Superior Court justices um, and at least 15 tribunal members uh, may have been making donations uh, after their appointment. Um, and uh, yeah, I should specify that making donations um, after appointment is a very different matter than making them before. Right. Uh, you know, when before uh, a uh, judge or tribunal member is appointed, you know, they are a private citizen, they have, you know, every right to participate in the political process. Yeah. Um, after they are uh, appointed, though, however, um, both uh, on courts as well as on tribunals, there are different um, codes of conduct um, and ethics rules that they, you know, promise to abide by. Um, in the case of the uh, Superior Court justices that may have donated, um, the Canadian Judicial Council has uh, a set of ethical principles that does say that judges must cease all partisan political activity um, upon assumption of judicial office. Uh, so that would, um, you know, if the investigation finds that these judges did in fact donate, um, that would, you know, fly in the face of these uh, ethical guidelines. Right. So that would pretty clearly in include political donations. Like there, there's not a lot of gray area there, doesn't sound like. 
Absolutely, yes. So I, I believe that the ethical principles also goes on to um, spell out what, uh, you know, types of political activity uh, could be involved. So, you know, it might be uh, membership, uh, but uh, donating is, uh, at least from the, the experts we spoke to, also confirmed that it is very much falling within the category of political activities that judges are not supposed to be uh, doing. So as mentioned, the Canadian Judicial Council is, is now looking into this. What, what have they said about a possible review or, or probe of all of this? Uh, so at the, at the moment, um, especially because, uh, as, as we're aware, um, this, this probe has really, um, you know, only they were only just made aware of our, our analysis, um, mm-hmm. suggesting that these could be um, possible possible matches for donations um, just a, just a couple of days ago, really. So uh, from my understanding, um, the you know review hasn't uh, progressed through uh, you know too many stages yet. Um, but you can you can be uh, rest assured that uh, as uh, if there are any more developments, that we'll be we'll be sure to report on them and uh, keep the public apprised of what's happening. Absolutely. Well, some important investigative work again. Uh, the series is called Donating Judges. Uh, the latest at NationalPost.com. Kate Schneider, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay, very interesting. There you go. Kate Schneider with the Investigative Journalism Foundation has been working on this series. And yeah, I think calls attention to some pretty serious issues potentially. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.